thanks for checking out Covenant's podcast. Our prayer is that God uses this message to impact your life. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Merry Christmas, everybody. Great to be here. Great to be a part of this series, Songs of Christmas. And I want to ask you this morning to begin with me by using your imagination. Are you ready for that? Use your imagination this morning. Let's suppose that somehow, some way, you lost your ability to hear and speak for nine months. I know. Merry Christmas, right? What a happy thought. But uh, let's say that you bumped your head or maybe you got struck by lightning or your hair dryer fell into the bathtub with you. But one way or the other, you lost your ability to hear and to speak for a period of time. Now, for some of our friends, this is not difficult to imagine because they live with hearing impairments. But for the rest of us, Living without one of our senses, let alone two of our senses, for any period of time is unthinkably hard. Nevertheless, I want you to imagine with me that you had to endure nine months of silence and quiet, unable to hear or to say a word. So you get up every day, you get dressed, you go to work, you interact with your family, your friends, and your coworkers. You do the best you can with that. You even come to church. You see things. You see people that you ordinarily see, but all in a state of silence. So you got it? Now, I want you to imagine that suddenly, after nine long months, your hearing and your speech is restored. Now, the big question is that if you were deaf and silent for nine months, unable to say a word for 270 consecutive days, and then suddenly, miraculously, your ability to speak was restored, what would you say? Now, I've had a chance to think about this and pray about this, and I'm pretty sure I'd say something like, (laughs) E-A-G-L-E-S. But I'm not that spiritual. Today, as we continue our series, Songs of Christmas, from the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, we're going to meet a man who experienced nine months of silence, and we're going to read and hear the very words he spoke after that season of silence came to an abrupt end. His name was Zechariah. He was the husband of Elizabeth who was, whose song we considered a couple weeks ago. He was the father of John, called John the Baptist. His wife Elizabeth was the cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and therefore Zechariah became a distant relative of the Jewish Messiah. According to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 through 24, Zechariah was a priest He was serving in the temple of the Lord. When an angel appeared to him and revealed that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son after a long lifetime of infertility. But when Zechariah questioned and doubted the words of the angel, the Bible tells us that he lost his ability to hear and to speak until the pregnancy was completed. Finally, after these months of silence, 
meditation, prayer, and reflection, Zechariah speaks for the first time in a very long time. And we find his words in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. The first word Zechariah speaks is blessed. Praise be to the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. When the day shall dawn upon us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. This is the song of Zechariah. This is the word of the Lord. Now there's a lot here, so let's unpack it one at a time. The, the main idea of my message this morning is this. The silence is broken by the guarantee of five great gifts for Christmas. Zechariah's nine-month-long period of quiet comes to a surprising end as he sings a song in the form of a prophecy that foretells all that God is going to do at the birth of Jesus Christ. So I want you to picture five brightly wrapped Christmas gifts placed beneath your Christmas tree, and we're going to carefully unwrap them one great gift at a time. And the first great gift we're guaranteed at Christmas is the gift of fulfilled promises. Now, as a father of three uh, as, and the grandfather of five, I've learned the value and importance of making and keeping my promises to my children. Breaking my word could have a damaging effect on their life, right? that if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, that it might impact the delicate measure of trust that they have in me. So it's so important that I live a life of consistency, that I keep my promises to my children. Now, one example of this is when my kids were younger, between the ages of eight and 10, we planned to take them to Disney World. And Debbie and I didn't tell them that we were going until the day before we got on the airplane for fear that something would happen that would keep us from doing what we said we would do. And this is a lesson that we have learned by following Jesus. Like the songs of Elizabeth and Mary, this 
Song of Christmas is based upon promises God made to his people in the Old Testament, Israel. In verse 70, Zechariah reminds us that he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Then again, in verses 72 and 73, he reminds us of God's pledge to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, an oath which he swore to our father Abraham. The things that were about to come to pass in Zechariah's day were the fulfillment of promises that had been made hundreds of years before him, several thousand years before our lifetime. So one of the main concerns of these songs of Christmas, all of them, is to preserve the honesty, the integrity, the truthfulness, and the reliability of God. Our God is one who makes and keeps his promises. One of the greatest gifts we can receive at Christmas is the awareness that God always does what God says he will do. In this world that is so unreliable, so shaky, we can have absolute and utter confidence in God's word. God keeps his promises. Merry Christmas. Now the second great gift we'll find under the tree is the gift of redeemed people. One of my childhood memories of Christmas Day is when my great aunt May and Uncle Roy came to visit. They didn't come to our house often, maybe once or twice a year, but every time they came, it was a happy occasion. You see, my Aunt May made candy, old-fashioned, high-quality, chocolate-covered candy. And she always brought a lot for us to enjoy. Now, my Uncle Roy, he brought silliness and money. Uncle Roy was a jokester, and he always made us laugh, and he brought plenty of coins in his pocket to fill our piggy banks. And so it was a great memory for me to think about the fact that every time they visited, their visit was so very, very good. Well, in a similar way, Zechariah and the Jewish people prophetically look forward to a visit from God. Because when God visited earth, they knew and believed that something very good was going to happen. People would be redeemed. That's what was going to happen. In verse 68, Zechariah sings of the first of many promises that would come with the birth of Jesus. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Notice the conjunction between God visiting and God's redemption. The, the idea, idea of, of redemption, redemption would, would cause any good Jewish person to think about how God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt and delivered them into the promised land as free people. Only this time, God would redeem people from an even greater, more horrible form of slavery. 
slavery to sin and selfishness. He would redeem us from one place and bring us into his family as his children. That's what Paul speaks about in Galatians 4-7 where he wrote, so you, believer in Jesus, are no longer a slave but a child. And since you are his child, you are also an heir. An heir. What a gift. What a beautiful gift to receive and embrace at Christmas time. The third great gift guaranteed to us at Christmas is defeated enemies. Our enemies will be defeated, the Bible says. Now this must have been really important to Zechariah because he mentions it twice. First, in verse 70, he remembers God's promise that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then again, in verse 74, he refers to how they will be delivered from the hand of our enemies. Perhaps you know that Israel has always been a vulnerable country, surrounded by hostile nations on every side. Their backs against the sea. And never was this more true than in Zechariah's day, when the nation of Israel lived under the brutal dominion of a militaristic Roman Empire. The Jewish people dreamed of a time when God would send a savior, deliverer, warrior Messiah who would finally conquer their enemies and bring them into undisturbed peace. But Jesus taught that there are far worse and more deadly enemies than those that threaten us with military, economic, and cyber attacks. Specifically, Jesus warns us against the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. By the world, we're referring to the influences upon us as we live in a fallen, sinful human race of which we are a part. By the flesh, we're talking about your own personal, sinful, and selfish desires. And by the devil, we're speaking about one who would undermine any and every interest you have in your eternal soul. Those are three formidable enemies that Jesus would defeat. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 5, Jesus said, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now one interesting side note here is Zechariah's reference to a horn of salvation in verse 68. My first thought was that this horn was the horn of a goat or a ram used like a trumpet to announce an attack or victory in battle. But after further research, I discovered that this horn of salvation is more likely a reference to a long, pointy, and dangerous horn of an animal that was often used, like a, used by a man like a spear to pierce the enemy through. 
This being the case, then Jesus is the horn of our salvation because he has pierced through our enemies by his death on the cross in our place. And by the power of his resurrection, Jesus has brought the defeat of all our enemies and he's delivered us into peace. Again, a precious gift to remind ourselves at Christmas time. Related to this is the fourth gift guaranteed at Christmas forgiven sins. Forgiven sins. According to PNC Financial Services Corporation, the price tag for the 12 days of Christmas will increase by 6.2% this year, the greatest level of inflation in the last 30 years. The cost of two turtle doves, five gold rings, 10 pipers piping, and the rest grew from $38,994 last year to now $41,206 this year. I've crossed it off the list for my wife, sorry dear. Not gonna happen. The average American will spend $648 this season on Christmas gifts, but because of inflation, they will get far less for their money. But I ask you, how much would you pay for a clear conscience this Christmas? How much would you pay for the peace of mind that comes from knowing that all your sins, past, present, and future, have been fully and completely pardoned by Almighty God? (laughs) Wow, what is the cash value of salvation? Zechariah predicts that the next great gift guaranteed on Christmas is forgiven sins. In verse 77 and 78, he sings of God's desire to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. For Zechariah, forgiven sins was a distant and future hope, something he longed for at the coming of the Messiah. But for us, forgiven sins can be a present reality, something we treasure infinitely more than the value of the 12 days of Christmas. In his essay entitled, Why It so important to remember Easter on Christmas, Pastor Clarence Haynes Jr. explains why many prefer the Jesus of Christmas to the Jesus of Easter. He says, the Jesus of Christmas was cute and cuddly. The Jesus of Easter was bruised and broken. The Jesus of Christmas was small and innocent. The Jesus of Easter is larger than life. The Jesus of Christmas was celebrated by many, hated by few. The Jesus of Easter was hated by many, celebrated by few. The Jesus of Christmas was born to die. The Jesus of Easter died to give life. The Jesus of Christmas was King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Jesus of Easter is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So says the pastor. We must remember that the Jesus that was born in a wooden manger 
was eventually nailed to a wooden cross. Because of God's tender mercy, the Bible tells us, because of his mercy, he sent his son into the world. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived a life of total obedience to the Father's will. Jesus willingly took our sins upon himself on the cross, and he suffered our sins penalty in our place. He was buried, but on the third day he rose again, giving forgiveness and eternal life to all who would believe in him, simply believe in him. As the old Christmas carol said, Jesus was born that men no more may die. Have you received the gift of his forgiveness? What a tremendous thing to do at Christmas time. Forgiven sins. Finally, and fifthly, we have a great gift given to us at Christmas, and the gift is illumined hearts. Zechariah's song celebrates the fact that Christmas would bring hearts that are enlightened by the light of the gospel of Jesus. In verses 78 and 79, it says, when the day shall dawn upon us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. For some reason, these verses remind me of my old friend, Mary Elzinga. Some of you remember Mary Elzinga? They, they watch online, I hear. Mary, hello. Paul, hello. Three people remember you here. Well, I've never met anybody who loved sunrises more than Mary Elzinga. Isn't that true? Look at the, yes, she loves sunrises. Last month, Debbie and I went to the Grand Canyon and met up with Mary and Paul there. And on the very first night, after Debbie and I spent a long day of traveling, Mary decided to stay up late after midnight to see the Milky Way. Debbie and I went to bed. And then she decided to wake Paul up in the wee hours of the morning because she had to see the sunrise over the Grand Canyon. And they said it was amazing. We agree, we saw the pictures. <laughs> Scripture tells us that becoming a Christian, that is receiving Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, is something like a spectacular sunrise in your heart. That's what it's like. The darkness of your doubts dissipate. The fear of death disappears. It's like the most brilliant sunrise you've ever experienced only within you, within your heart. A sunrise that sheds light on the world and life in a way like you've never seen before. It's amazing. And it leaves you in absolute wonder and worship at the glory of God. That's what it li it's like to become a Christian, to have the sunrise in your heart. That is the fifth great gift that comes at Christmas. 
So there you have them, all five, sitting under your Christmas tree. Promises fulfilled. God does what he says he will do. Redeemed people, you are free from slavery and now a child of God. Defeated enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil have been pierced through by your deliverer. Forgiven sins, all your failings, past, present, and future, have been canceled. And then there's illumined hearts. The light of the gospel shines in you and shines through you. Now I ask you, if you had to choose one of these great gifts to enjoy this Christmas, which one would it be? But you don't have to choose. You can have them all free and fully paid for by the one who filled Zachariah's song. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, as we receive the bread and the cup, reminders of Jesus' broken body and shed blood, I want you to think about all the great gifts your heavenly Father has placed under your Christmas tree for you this Christmas, and allow your heart to be filled with fresh gratitude for who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done even as we sing our songs of Christmas. Please pray with me. Almighty God and merciful Heavenly Father, we wholeheartedly thank you for your tender mercy. That tender mercy which prompted you to send your own unique and special son, Jesus, into the world for us. We acknowledge that he was born that men and women like us no more may die. As we come to the Lord's table this morning and we fill our hands with this bread and cup, which are ancient reminders of who Jesus is and what he has done, we pray that you would be very present with us by your Holy Spirit, refreshing our hearts with gladness and joy that come only by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And would you point us once again to the cross where Jesus paid sin's price on our behalf and make us even more thankful for what you have done. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Hopefully you received the elements as you came in. Whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, a number of things happen. We don't always think about them all, but I wanna remind you today. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance. Jesus said, take, eat, and drink in remembrance of me. So in other words, every time we take the bread and the cup, we are supposed to remember Jesus and what he did. But the Lord's Supper is also communion. We call it holy communion, right from the Bible. 
because the Lord's Supper is not just a remembrance of Jesus. When we take the Lord's Supper with faith and in gratitude for what Christ has done for us, the Bible promises that Jesus will be present with us, not physically, of course, but spiritually and very really. We experience the presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. It's not a, it's not a, um, it's not magic, but it is a mystery. And the third thing that happens when we have the Lord's Supper is it's a proclamation. The Bible tells us that for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when you're proclaiming something, there's usually an audience. And so who is the audience of our proclamation? First, we are our own audience. When you take this bread and cup, you remind yourself of who Jesus is for you. And that's why it's important if you have not yet received Jesus, then receiving this bread and cup is of no benefit to you. But if you have received Jesus, you proclaim the Lord's death to yourself. We proclaim the Lord's death to one another. And as the world may watch, even online, we proclaim the Lord's death to all who would see. Many things are happening here. Let's engage them all. And remember the words that Scripture used to describe this moment. For on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body, broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. Let us receive the bread together. Likewise, after supper, our Lord Jesus took the cup. He gave it to his disciples and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many to take your sins away. All of you drink of it. Dear Jesus, Words are not enough to express the great gratitude we should have because of who you are and what you have done. So we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of life, the Spirit who enables us to express our gratitude for you and to you. And receive these words of thanks and in even the silent meditation of our heart. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and worship God.